Welcome. Thank you for joining the conversation. I'm your host, Randy Hugh, Assistant Director of Collection Development and Curator of Political, Cultural, and Social Movement Collections at Emory University's Stuart A. Rose Manuscript Archives and Rare Book Library. And you're listening to the podcast series, Atlanta Intersections. June 12 is Record Store Day. And last year, a defining moment in Atlanta's punk history took place in the city's Little Five Points neighborhood. There, in the parking lot behind the Star Bar, the past, present, and future of Atlanta's punk scene gathered to celebrate the release of Neon Christ Deluxe reissue 1984, with performances by Neon Christ, Gigi King, and Upchuck. The show produced what local music writer Chad Radford called, quote, a punk rock catharsis after four years of intense socio-political tumult brought to a head by the pandemic, unquote. Today, I talk with William Duvall and Randy Duteau of Neon Christ, the legendary Atlanta hardcore band. William, Randy, Jimmy Deemer, and Danny Langford formed Neon Christ in 1983. The band played their first show on December 31st, 1983, and soon began sharing the stage with hardcore luminaries such as the Dead Kennedys, Dirty Rotten Imbeciles, Circle Jerks, and Corrosion of Conformity. In March 1984, they recorded the Parental Suppression EP, and five months later, they were back in the studio recording four more songs. One of those songs, Ashes to Ashes, appeared on MDC's International Peace War compilation, and that record brought the band's music to a worldwide audience. In 2021, Southern Lord released 1984, a deluxe edition of all the material Neon Christ recorded in 1984. This episode is part one of my conversation with William and Randy, so let's get started. Welcome to Atlanta Intersections. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for cool. having us. Great. What, what intersection are we at? Are we at the Moreland and Euclid? or? Uh, I thought Lucky maybe, Lucky and maybe. Simpson, right? Lucky and Simpson, yeah. Okay. Near, near Five Points, that's an intersection. That's a good intersection. So I thought I would start by asking you um, how y'all discovered punk and hardcore. Uh, I want to start there because it's kind of easy to forget how far outside the mainstream on the margins punk and hardcore were in the early 1980s you couldn't hear it on the radio could hardly find it in the record stores um it wasn't talked about in the media and kind of given these realities how did you discover it well for me it was uh i i was aware of the ramones and the sex pistols i was aware of um well the New York scene, let's say, so the Ramones and, and television and uh, and all of those bands that came out of there. Um, 
including the Dead Boys, who were from Ohio, but moved over. And, um, and then, of course, what was happening in England with the, the Pistols and the Clash, um, because that, uh, particularly the Sex Pistols, were so, um, they were covered in the mainstream media, but only in terms of, in, in a sensationalist way. So uh, I was generally aware of it, and anytime I saw a photograph of it, like in Hit Parade or Cream magazine or anything like that, it always looked exciting and, and, and dangerous. Uh, I finally did hear some of the music, you know, the, the Sex Pistols music, and, and, uh, and it, it was sort of scary, but sort of cool, and at the same time, I was sort of backtracking into the pre-punk music, um, you know, the Stooges and the MC5 and uh, all of that kind of thing. I, I remember this was, I was, this was late 70s, so 78, you know, and of course Sid Vicious was in the news and I remember going to the mall and seeing the Raw Power album in the stands and the picture was very captivating and so I I picked that up. It was a discount record, you know, and I think I got it for one ninety nine or something. And I picked that up and took it home, and that was really great. I thought, you know, the guitar playing on it was just so cool. I was I was getting into out jazz by that time, and James Williamson was kind of doing all that spastic stuff, and there was a lot more lead guitar playing going on in the Stooges than there was in the Pistols, and obviously the Ramones had no guitar solos. So I, I really love the Stooges. And, uh, but as much as I liked all of that music, I heard something more extreme in my head. I was thinking like, there has to be something that's even more. Like I, if I were doing this music, I would want it to be even more you know, crazy or whatever. And, and then I started reading about LA, what was happening in Los Angeles, the LA punk scene. And Musician Magazine, was a music, there was a magazine back then called Musician, Player, and Listener. And I was given a subscription to that magazine, I think for my 11th birthday. And they had all kinds of great, you know, I think my first issue was Sun Ra and George Clinton on the cover. And then, you know, Brian Eno on the next cover. And then Frank Zappa on the next cover. So there was, and they were covering within their feature stories and sidebar articles, all kinds of amazing stuff. So this one issue came with this article on L.A. punk hard. They were, I think it may have been the earliest use I'd seen of hardcore, and it, it surprisingly was more of a sensationalist article. Like they were, they were kind of not so sure about it, and they were they liked the energy. The writer, whoever was writing it, liked the energy, but he actually talked about this band Black Flag as being like a racist band, and I remember they had a picture of Des Kadena in there. And and uh, he was, you know, doing his usual Des pose, you know, like where he just looks, you know, kind of like a contorted string bean, you know. And they had Chuck Dukowski behind him, bald headed, like total skinhead looking like he was just imploding, you know. And I thought, wow, that's weird, you know, because I mean, I guess I see a, a, a bald headed sort of skinhead looking guy, but the guy who uh, who's singing looks kind of ethnic you know like he looked like he could be puerto rican or something it wasn't ron reyes who really was puerto rican i later found out about that but they were all basing it around that song right minority and the sarcasm that they didn't pick up on despite their misinterpretation 
I thought the music sounded really exciting. And so when the decline of Western civilization came to play in Washington, D.C. in uh, 81, early 81, I begged my grandfather to take me to go see it. We went down to the DuPont Circle Theater, and then I saw the real Black Flag come on with the Puerto Rican singer, Ron Reyes. And it was obviously, it was just, I always describe it as a life-changing moment. That's what it was. It, it was a total epiphany. Uh, not only is it incredible, but I have to do that. That was the great thing. It was like, I need to form a band right now. And I need to start writing my own songs right now. You know, not just, I've been playing guitar for, a, uh, for quite a few years by then. You know, Decline came out, I was about, I don't know, 13 you know, and I've been playing since I was eight. So I had the guitar kind of together, jamming with all kinds of different records in my room and stuff, you know. And, uh, but this was, I have to form a band and I have to start writing my own tunes. And Randy, how about, how about you? I, uh, I got into skateboarding when I was probably fourth or fifth grade, you know, and I got all the magazines. And at some point, you know, the punk rock scene, started really sort of, you know, drifting into the skateboarding scene. And uh, so reading through Skateboarder magazine and then Action Now magazine, you'd see these record reviews. And um, my brother used to take me to the skateboard park when I was in middle school. And, you know, I'd, I'd hear this music and I was sort of intrigued with it. Then, you know, we moved to Minneapolis from Atlanta. And um, I think it was probably that time where I saw the B-52s and Devo on Saturday Night Live. And I think that seeing those two bands on Saturday Night Live was the gateway drug to punk rock for a lot of people. And, um, you know, when I saw both of those bands and they were just so weird, I think that that sort of, I felt like it gave me license, you know, to start embracing that lifestyle. And um, I met up with some guys in high school and, um, you know, at the time, Minneapolis had a huge scene. And we started finding out about warehouse shows and um, all ages venues. And so we, you know, put on our best punk garb and, you know, go down to these shows. And uh, that's how I learned about it and, you know, formed a band and another band and moved to Atlanta again and formed another band. So that's how it happened. Interesting that both of you say your reaction to that was forming a band. So unlike Jimmy and Danny, both of you were in bands before Neon Christ. Could you tell us about the bands you were in before Neon Christ? The first band that I was in was called Adam 12, A-T-O-M 12. And, um, you know, I was sort of the token punk mod guy in the band. Um, we played one show. Our set consisted of Should I Stay or Should I Go, um, Just What I Needed, Sultans of Swing, where I had to use a lyric sheet, um, Born to be Wild, and um, a couple of other songs. But uh, we played that, we were in that band, and then um, I felt like I needed to go in a different direction. And uh, so I found my friend Scott Walker and his brother Greg, and we formed a band called White Noise. And... Um, you know, Scott could barely play the guitar, um, Greg couldn't play the drums, and I'd never done vocals before, and so it started out like every other typical punk rock band, and that's how that happened, and, you know, we probably played a half dozen shows. We weren't great, but we did it, so. <laughs> uh, my first, my first band was, uh, called 
initially the circuits and then uh figured we needed a more uh a more punk rock name uh with the acronym you know and so i always loved the uh, there were a lot of three did three letter acronyms and I, I always loved TSOL because they had a four-letter acronym. And I said, like, I want a four-letter acronym. And so changed the name from the circuits to AVOC, which stood for Awareness Void of Chaos. We were a three-piece band. I, um, well, I should preface this by saying that my initial experiences with punk rock were uh, when I was in Washington, D.C., which is my hometown. And just as I was finding out about the amazing scene happening right in my own backyard, including Columbia, Maryland, which was the last suburb I lived in before we, my whole family picked up and moved to Atlanta, um, you know, I, I was just finding out about the Discord thing and Void being right from Columbia. And then it's like, whoops, we got to go. So um, <laughs> came to Atlanta where nothing was happening. Right? And that's where I formed uh, the circuits AVOC AVOC and um, it was uh, I was put into the local high school Southwest DeKalb High School where no one would speak to me I mean it was, it was like a, it was a it was an alien and uh, the only two kids who would talk to me and give me the time of day were Ricky Jackson who played the the drum in the marching band and uh, so I knew he could play drums. And, uh, and then Roger Maynard, who played nothing, he played no instrument at all, but was just a cool kid who kind of got along with everybody. He was one of those guys who could move between uh, cliques. I immediately brought them to my house and started convincing them that this new music was the way to go. And I, and I um, played them by then I had acquired some Black Flag singles. I had the six pack single, and uh, I think I had Nervous Breakdown. And uh, I also had The Clash. So there was a reggae thing there that I could kind of bridge them into. Like, it's not just these, these white boys screaming all the time, you know? They like, they like our music too, you know? Like it was kind of that thing. And so I was like, Roger, you can play bass. You've never played anything, but I have a bass you can pick this up and it's only four strings and you just you can play one note at a time and you can play some of these reggae bass lines. Ricky was a really good sort of martial military sound drummer and uh, he had a drum kit. So from our initial meetings at my house in my room where I'm playing them these records, we then moved our, our thing over to Ricky's house where he had his drum set and I brought my little amplifier over there and my Fender Mustang guitar and my couple of effects pedals. And I had a little bass amp, PV bass amp for Roger. We brought the bass and the, and the bass amp over there and we started 1982. Should I Stay or Should I Go was a staple song, just like for, you know, for your first band, Randy. I mean, it's, it's one of those things you can, it's so simple and it's cool. You know, you feel cool playing it. But the trick was, we recorded demo tapes. And I took that tape downtown to Steve May at 688, the one club that had any kind of alternative anything. That was the club Iggy Pop would play if he came to town. And they would occasionally book a hardcore show too. You know, if Black Flag came, that was the one place they could play. 
And Steve May, to his credit, you know, gave us a gig. Discovering the Bad Brains was a big thing. I must say, I must include that as well because right around that time, '82 is when I got that Roar cassette, the Bad Brains put out. That was life changing for us because we were three black children from Southwest DeKalb, you know, and it was like, oh, now brothers are playing this music. Four brothers from DC, where I'm from, and they're the best. They are bar none the best musicians in this game. They were jazz fusion guys, kind of like me. They grew up the same way I did. Like, you, you got to be able to play, man. But then they found punk. You know what I'm saying? So that was great. And then Steve gave us an, a second show opening for the Circle Jerks. And now it's like, now we're talking. You know, like, oh, now, you know, we found out about that show as soon as I found out. We were at Roger Maynard's house and we started moshing all around his little basement rec room, jumping up onto the couch and diving off and all of that. And uh, just it was really exciting because it was so innocent. You know, you barely know how to plug your gear in, you know, especially in a professional setting on a stage with real people. And um, Ricky Jackson got grounded at the Circle Drug show. His mother wouldn't let him come down. So we, we got to sound check and it was like, where's Ricky, you know? And, you know, cause our moms and our parents are having to drop us off these gigs, you know? And Ricky didn't show up. And uh, that was a whole other nightmare story because uh, I was on the payphone begging his brother, his older brother, Tony Jackson. I was like, Tony, man, you gotta talk to your mom, man. You gotta, you gotta explain, this is really, it's a big deal, man. This is the circle jerks, you know? Like this is, you know, we'll never get another show like this. And in the meantime, I had to convince Greg Somas. Well, I didn't have to convince. He was actually cool enough to offer. Greg Somas, rest his soul, the drummer from DDT, the only other sort of hardcore-ish band in this town. And Greg Somas was the greatest drummer for me in, in, in town at the time. He was like Atlanta's Keith Moon. And uh, I looked up to him. I looked at those guys. They were older than we were. They were like, you know late teens, you know, and uh, Greg said, you know, I can, I can sit in until he, you know, I can sit in for you, you know, <laughs> I remember like the, the countdown in the dressing room to our time to go on, and we sat there like, just like we were going to execution, because Greg didn't know the songs, you know, I mean, we could barely get it together a lot of the times, you know, in the band, and Greg, he didn't know any of us, so I'm trying to like teach him, okay, so this song, it starts out like this, it's kind of 60s, and then it goes into this Django part, and then, and then we stop, and then we go into the thrash part, I'll start it, and then you just come in, thrash it, and like, I mean, this is all like five minutes before we have to go on, and then finally the guy comes by, and he's like, you're on, and I'm like, (laughs) and of course, you know, we try to do this arrangement, and by the time the thrash part comes, Greg takes off like a freaking jet plane. We don't even know where we are. It's like a tornado on stage. And as this is happening, I start seeing this parade come down the, 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 the side of the, of the audience to the side of the stage. And I see Tony Jackson first carrying like, you know, some drum of some kind. And then like, and then I see Ricky Jackson right behind him, you know, and like, (laughs) and and so like third song, Rick's ready to get up there. And by then I was just so shattered. Humiliation in front of this, our biggest audience yet before the circle jerks. But somehow, you know, People liked it. I think just the novelty of seeing these, we were so 
we were such kids, man. And just the novelty of seeing us and the fact that we didn't look like anybody else in that whole place. And we're getting up there playing that kind of music. It, it was, we were really trying and we, they could see the earnestness of it. And, I, and that, was, that was where I met a girl who ended up kind of uh, helping shift things a bit in, the, in a good direction because through her I met this whole group of people, ended up changing my school, I ended up going to Horizons. And it really opened a lot of doors to the scene that ended up being, for me, the core of the Atlanta scene. Because it takes building a community. That show, for me, was the beginning of the building of the community, you know, where we weren't just the aliens who were venturing in from Southwest to Cab anymore. Now it was like, oh, I have a doorway to where I can be downtown all the time if I want to. I have people now, you know what I mean? And they understand what's happening. And I guess that sort of initial core community, that formed the nucleus that ended up growing the Atlanta hardcore punk scene as we know it still today. I mean, so that was a very important show. Well, and I'm really glad that you brought up community and DDT because I feel like a lot of times DDT doesn't get mentioned enough these days because yeah. they, they yeah. were the first hardcore band in Atlanta. And yeah. so... Yeah. yeah, what what did DDT mean to y'all uh, when when you know when you were in Neon Christ? They were they were a big deal. Yeah, I mean they were when uh, the very first show that I attended at the Metroplex uh, was the day that I met Greg Somas, and um, you know right away, I mean he was super cool. I met him. I think I met Rick Barr um, and met Jim as well. And Rob was out of town, and. Um, I think it was that day one of the guys gave me a record and I went home and I just remember listening to Mr. Rogers Neighborhood over and over and over. It's just so confectionary and beautiful. But um, I mean, they were great friends. You know, they were you know kind of mentors to us. They gave us some opportunities. Our first real show, you know, was opening up for DDT and Little Five Points. And um, I think it's a shame that, you know, in terms of history, I mean, you know, the people that know, you know, give them props and give them respect, but, you know, they should be known a lot more than they are. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, again, they were, they were a bit older, and, in, and at that age, at that stage of your life, you know, two or three years is, is a lot. It means a lot. So if I'm 15, those guys are, you know, 18, 17, 18, they had jobs, they had cars, they could drive all these they had like girlfriends you know this stuff is huge to me and like they just seemed like grown-ups in a way but in a in a kind of a cool way the first time i encountered ddt was avoc had had, had gotten gigs at 688 which was on spring street downtown and uh i had heard about this place on lucky street called the metroplex so immediately had to go over there and investigate what was happening because the Metroplex, for people, again, that know, and maybe even people outside of the whole scene who weren't there, that became the place. That was the headquarters for the, the hardcore scene. It became essential. It was, it was very, very important. Originally, the Metroplex was in a little storefront on Lucky Street, and uh, my first time going there, DDT was rehearsing there when I showed up. It was in the daytime. And I got there in the afternoon, and they were, you know, maybe a Sunday afternoon or something, and they were 
as, as I was walking into the door, they had someone on stage, it might have been Tom, the sound man, giving a mock introduction. And he was saying like, something like, uh, and now it's time for Sandy Springs' favorite teen combo, DDT. And then they start playing. And you know, there's like really nobody there. And, um, but I walked in and they were, they were doing their set at the time. So they were doing, you know, the songs off of that little 45 EP record. And that was the thing too. They had a record out. I mean, it was like, wow, like they have a record and, and they could play and they had, they had cool songs. I, I, I remember really liking uh, the song Brave New World. And I like this song, I'm uh, Walking Down the Psychopath, you know. And I'll tell you something, I've never told anybody, but I thought, there's a line in the Psychopath song that says, everywhere I go, I get the shaft. You know, it's kind of talking it, you know. And I thought that that meant you were shoving me down the elevator shaft. Like, I had no idea, like, you know, you're so innocent as a kid. You know, I, I didn't know what that really, I didn't know what the expression really meant, you know. And so I thought, oh, yeah, you're getting pushed down the other shaft. Yeah, I get it, man. I know, I identify. <laughs> <laughs> and later on, I used that in a song called We Mean Business that was originally an AVOC song, you know, like, you know, you try to give me the shaft, you know. You're know, sure coming to kill my craft? Yes, 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 yes. And uh, shall I continue? I, it, was, it was, it was, it was sort of like a little uh, subtle homage to DDT because you know it was the first time I'd heard that expression. I know it's an old expression, but it was the first time I'd heard it. And um, yeah, anyway, they were they were great, and uh, all of them they were really great. And I and especially Greg Somers to me was was very important. I, I don't think they get enough acknowledgement either. Rob is a cool guy. They were they were all cool. I mean, you know, yeah. After AVOC ends, William, when did you start pulling together Neon Christ? Well, AVOC played through the summer of 83, and um, around about September 83, you know, things just sort of run its course. And by then, um, I was really sort of uh, engaging more and more with the community that I was you know, that was forming, you know, uh, particularly around the Metroplex. Once that, once the Metroplex came, then you had a place to hang out aside from just playing shows. It was a bit of a, uh, like more of a meeting place. So I started meeting more people and I could, and I wanted to do something that was more serious, more committed. AVOC was really great for what it was, um, but I wanted to play every day and I wanted to, be, I was writing songs all the time, and I needed a vehicle that uh, 
that could facilitate that. And so the level of commitment in AVOC was a bit more casual. And uh, so I wanted something that was faster, louder, harder, more extreme, and uh, obsessive. And I met Jimmy Deemer at one of these shows, you know, outside at one of the Metroplex shows. I can't remember which one now, but... Um, and I asked him, can you play drums like Greg Somas? And, you know, Jim at that time was knee-high to a grasshopper, you know. He's probably 13 or something. And, uh, you know, it's a little kid. And, but he just seemed really enthusiastic. And so he said, I can try. And, you know, drum, he'd never played drums. So... Uh, it was an undertaking, but he was committed. So he got himself a, a drum kit, a Tama drum kit, and we played every day, every day. And same with, um, you know, Danny Lankford. He started showing up at the rehearsals, and he would just sit there quietly, you know, and not say a word and just watch. And because some of our early rehearsals were held at a place called the Fallout Shelter in Little Five Points, and it was just this sort of space, I guess. You know, you could it was multi-use, performance space, whatever. And uh, we used it to rehearse. And so kids would just show up. The early punk rock kids would just show up, you know, kids from the early scene. And they would hang out. I think, you know, some of them were hoping to maybe be in the band. They sort of heard loosely that we were auditioning people bass players, singers. But Danny, that's how Danny, you know, really came around to me. I became aware of him. He wanted to play guitar at first, and he had like an Ibanez sort of heavy metal guitar, like a Destroyer, Ibanez Destroyer. And the guitar thing didn't work out, but I was like, again, with Roger Maynard, it was the same thing. I said, I have a bass, man, and you could, you could really get down on that. So he started with that. And um, Randy Ditto, I first saw him at, I think it might have been one of the Ratlanta, like a Ratlanta, like maybe the Ratlanta Punk Fest. And um, AVOC was playing and, you know, doing our best up there in, thrashing along. And I remember we had a song called Stop in the Name of the Young. Yes, genius. It was about being underage because I was 15 and they were... The drinking age in Atlanta at the time was 19, and you couldn't go to any shows. Like, so many of the shows that were cool that I wanted to go to, I couldn't go to because of the age thing. And so a lot, some of our songs, some of the songs I was writing at the time were protest songs against this age limit. It's like, look, I'm not interested in drinking, I just want to see the music. So we had a song called Stop in the Name of the Young, and there's a part toward the end where, you know, just just screaming, stop, stop. So we're get to that part in the song and I saw Randy Duto just, you know, leaning into the stage. The Metroplex stage wasn't that high off the ground, so it was sort of like a high imagine a curb on the street, but a bit higher, you know, not even maybe knee high. So he had his foot propped up on the stage and he was leaning into the band and he was just screaming, Stop, stop and I just <laughs> I thought Wow, man, this guy's like, he's, he's, he's picking up on it. He's trying to sing along, even though he doesn't know the song, never heard the song before, doesn't know the words. But that, I was like, okay, that guy. And he had the look on his face. It was intense. I was like, man, make a middle note. Like, if you ever, 
needed a singer in a band. You got to think about that guy, you know. And sure enough, AVOC broke up shortly at, thereafter. And so during the whole Neon Christ formation process where Jimmy Deemer and I sort of formed the, the, the nucleus and we were playing every day and I was writing songs every day and I was coming in and we were thrashing just guitar and drums, man. We were the white stripes at first. You know what I mean? Like just, we were the flat duo jets. We were just getting down every day and I, you know, thought about Randy Duteau in the back of my mind. I was like, yeah, that, that, remember that guy? Yeah. Wow. You know, so that was kind of the thing. Eventually we, we got it together, you know. But Randy, there was a complication. Um, you didn't live in Atlanta at the time, did you? Yeah, so I was I was going to school at Young Harris, and um, we had a six-week break between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And so I came home and um, had a couple of messages from Danny, who I met during the summer. You know, we had developed a friendship. And so I called him up and said, hey, we're, we're starting a band. You know, would you be interested in being a part of it? And um, it's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. And he told me who was in the band. And he said, you know, we all want to get together at Jimmy's house. You know, can you come over and, you know, basically, you know, spend the weekend and hang out with us and, uh, you know, and meet everybody and, and maybe try to practice. And so they gave me the address, you know, 641 East Morningside. And, you know, and I'm driving out from Peachtree City. And, you know, in my mind, you know, Jimmy's going to live in the warehouse district, you know, and he's going to live in a squat, you know, <laughs> that's what like I'm envisioning. And so I, I pull up in front of the house. I'm like, well, I don't know if I'm in the right neighborhood. <laughs> and I go up and I knock on the door and Mr. Deemer comes up to the door and Mrs. Deemer comes up to the front door and they're like, we're so glad you're here. And they had a party that night and we had to meet all of the guests and um yeah that's how it got started but yeah so i um i went back to school you know they still wanted to practice and so jimmy and william would make these cassettes you know they would record the songs on a boombox and then they would send them with lyric sheets to me up at school and we wanted to get some practice in and um found out that a friend of mine, like one of the few people at college up at Young Harris who would talk to me, was this guy named Richard Turner. You know, he was a you know, long-haired rock and roll dude. And um, he was going home on the weekends. And so I said, if I give you 20 bucks for gas, you know, would you give me a ride? And um, so he would drop me off on Fridays at Jimmy's house. And I would spend the weekend. We would all stay there. And we would practice the songs that I'd learned during the week. And... Um, I spent a lot more time trying to do Neon Christ than I did work on school. <laughs> and uh, so the, the tragedy in all of this was that I was uh, put on academic suspension. And uh, the day that my parents uh, came to pick me up at school also happened to be the day that we were going to open up for uh, DRI and DDT. And um, my parents didn't know that I was going home on the weekends to practice with a band. They had no idea that I was, I was you know, in a punk rock band. And um, so I couldn't tell them that we had a show with one of the biggest hardcore bands on the planet. And uh, so we drove from Young Harris to some friend's house in Gainesville, Georgia, where we were going to spend the night. And um, because my parents were going to attend a party. And I couldn't explain to them that I needed to get to Atlanta. So the people that we were staying with, their son found a buddy who uh, 
um, would drive me to Atlanta and then get me back. And um, originally we were negotiating with Mr. Deemer about getting the ride. And he was going to require that each of us do four hours of hard labor. And we as a band got together and discussed it. And four hours of hard labor was just not going to do it. So we told him we would find another way. And um, so we found a way. And uh, the guys did sound check without me. And I pulled up, literally got out of the car, ran up onto the stage, and we played a killer show. I mean, it was amazing. And then I was asked to stay out of school for a little while, so <laughs> I had a lot more time to dedicate to the band. Well, and so before we get to the first show, uh, I wanted to ask about the name, Neon Christ. Uh, I want to ask, where did that come from? And then... Second of all, Atlanta was a very different place in the early 1980s. It was much more Southern, much more conservative, much more Bible Belt. Well, Neon Christ came from uh, a girl who, uh, who I knew who came up to me at the fallout shelter. Because, again, people just used to hang around, you know, watch us rehearse, watch Jim and I play. And then Danny, when he joined the band, watched the three of us play. And... Uh, this is before we moved everything over to Jim's parents' house in Morningside. So the early days, this, this we didn't have a name yet, and um, we, were, we were running through our set, and then afterward, this girl came up to me, and she mentioned having a dream, and at the end, she saw this neon Jesus. And I just thought, neon Christ, there you go, that's it. That's that's our name, okay? And uh, so we were just off and running with it. It was instantaneous. And um, yeah, as far as the whole uh, controversy, Bible Belt thing, um, I don't think at the time, that at, at the in the really early days, I, I did view it as, oh, it'll be a bit of a thumb in the nose at whatever, you know what I mean? Like, the conservatism, the uptightness, the Bible Belt thing. But I don't really think I understood <laughs> the full ramifications of it until a bit later, when things got much more intense, once the band became more popular. But yeah, the early days, it was just like, oh, that would be great, you know, and it would look so good on a sticker and it would look so good on a flyer and it would. And sure enough, you know, having uh, Danny Langford in the band, um, Danny had a job and worked at a sign place, you know, sign making uh, uh, place. So he he had access to the materials that we would need to screen T-shirts, make stickers, you know. So we would silk screen, well, he would silk screen all these stickers, and we just had thousands of them for free, and we plastered them everywhere. We were so ruthless. Every stop sign, every every surface that could accommodate a sticker had Neon Christ on it. And if you lived in the Atlanta, Atlanta metro area in, you know, 1983, 84, you saw our stickers. And... um they were printed we were, on that material that you could not peel off, too. Sorry, William. Yeah. So we were <laughs> relentless. and uh, But, you know, and I, I'm sure that attracted the attention and, uh, you know, provoked the ire of some authority figures in town. Uh, but, yeah, early on, we were more than fine with that. 
<clears throat> so when when was your first show? And technically, you know, our first sort of appearance was January first, nineteen eighty four. Yeah, December 31st, yeah, January 1st, yeah. We were, uh, uh, Scream was playing, and we had gotten to be friends with them when they played in the summertime, and um, I don't know how, like, you know, I think probably William and Jimmy had decided that we were on the bill without ever actually, like, being on the bill to the point where they just scribbled in Neon Christ on the flyer for the Night Porters and Scream, but uh, Scream played two sets, and so... Um, you know, we were we were told that we couldn't play, you know, and that was final. And so since Scream was playing two sets, we went up and talked to them. And before they played their second set, they let us come up and play. And um, Rick Barr played bass. And um, we played three or four songs, like Tear Down the Walls, um, America's Cult, and, you know, I don't know, a couple of others. But um, that was that was our official debut. And then a couple of weeks later, we played a show with the Dancers Collective. I think it may have been a benefit for the great Speckled Bird. And uh, we played with DDT and uh, a few other bands. And that was our first official, you know, like slot on a, on, a, on a show. The definition of hardcore has changed a lot over time. Like in January 1984, what did thrash hardcore mean? Super fast. I just wanted everything to be faster than the next thing and more challenging to play than the next thing so uh, that was sort of the the prime directive and um you know i guess you just have a lot of rage about things that music seemed to soundtrack the rage effectively it seemed to uh, you know, it was a it was a great vehicle to get all of that stuff out of you. Um, it was challenging to play physically, so after you would play a bunch of those songs in a row, you felt almost like you had gone through some sort of a athletic workout or you know ritual experience or something. Um, so. Yeah, it was in the early the early Neon Christ music was fast. Now, having said that, there was dynamics that weren't in a lot of other thrash bands, and it set us apart. You know, because I liked a lot of different kinds of music: '60s rock, and you know, sort of the pre-punk hard rock, and jazz music, and world music. You know, so that stuff would find its way in there, here and there, in sections, but. For the most part, we were there to assault the senses, and thrash music was very, very new. We were one of the earlier bands to do that kind of, you know, that kind of thing. Like now, you know, there's a whole genre around it, and bands, you know, later bands like, I don't know, Napalm Death and all those kind of groups, like, that came along later, but at the time, that uh, we started, there was really only DRI and the Neos and, you know, Deep Wound. Those were the bands that I knew about that were doing anything <clears throat> remotely like what we were doing. And I guess we all kind of had the same idea at, around the same time. Like, 
you know, and honestly, for, I mean, I didn't even know about some of those bands until we were already going. Like, you know, I heard the name, the Neos, but I didn't actually hear any of their music for, for quite a while after we had already gotten up and running. And, um, but DRI were really influential in that whole thing, you know, just really tight. They, they're, they were a great live band too. And so watching them was sort of like, oh, the bar is set, you know, for this kind of music, they are just amazing. And so uh, we tried to, we tried in our way to meet that bar, you know, I mean, we were a lot younger, inexperienced musicians, but that was that was the goal. And uh, so our early sets would have been like that. It was, you know, like DRI back then when they would play, they'd tack the set on the wall and it would roll down and the wall and down the stage. It was like a scroll. It was like the freaking, you know, because it had so many titles. Every song was, you know... 30 seconds long, you know, and had a lot of them. So they would just, there was a lot of, a lot of, and our thing was, you know, we weren't quite that to that point, but we were, we were, uh, there was a lot of, I was trying to write a lot. I was trying to come in every day with something new. And so there was, there was a lot of material. And as you would get more new material, you'd move the older stuff out. And, and there was a lot of that, but it was, Thrash Assault. Thrash well, we must assault. have been doing it right, you know, because like when we opened up for DRI, you know, we gave them a, a demo that we had recorded at the Metroplex. And those guys went up the East Coast just singing our praises. And um, so when Jimmy started making the phone calls to these clubs, you know, to ask them about playing shows when we were going to do our tour. And they were like, oh, yeah, DRI loves you guys. You know, and we, you know, show up to a town and, you know, like, oh, the, you know, when we saw DRI, they said that, you know, if y'all ever came through town, we had to see you, you know. And so whatever we were doing, it was to great effect. And, you know, and I, you know, William also touched on it, too, in terms of the dynamics, because we would come out and we'd play this blistering stuff. And then we would do a song like, why do I have to die? You know, where all of a sudden it's just this, do, 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 you know, it's this slow reggae beat. You know, and then it kicks into its thing. And so we we offered up enough, you know, to keep it from just being like a nonstop, you know, 23-minute blistering assault. You know, we could, you know, let people rest their brains for a couple of seconds, too. Betty Fluent! So you played your first show in January, and then in March, which is, you know, three months later, you're in the studio. Tell us about the recording, because that that's a pretty... I know you were playing every day, and I love Jimmy's quote about, I don't ever remember doing homework dur during Neon Christ, but I guess first, where did the idea that you could have a band and make your own record even come from? Because in the 1980s, that was a revolutionary idea, right? Record companies controlled all this. You weren't supposed to, you know, play, play, book your own shows. You weren't supposed to put out your own records. Where did the, where did this kind of um, community and ethos come from? 
from punk from punk from Straight from up. punk and specifically hardcore punk you know our our version of punk the early hardcore because uh you know the sex pistols and the clash they were still on major labels the ramones they were on sire records you know a major or sort of a major independent uh it was the hardcore uh kids that drew the line in the sand because there was going to be no interest in what we were doing from the commercial music sector at all and no one could have any illusions about that this music i mean if you thought the sex pistols were just noise and that they were just these drugged up crazy louts who were vomiting on people all the time imagine us you know it didn't even sound like music to people who liked you know more extreme rock they still hated what we were doing you know so if you were going to record what you were doing and and memorialize it and fix it into a, a, a tangible medium of expression you were going to have to do it and luckily we had people who were a bit older than us like Ian McKay and Discord doing what you know he was doing what they were doing up there and we had you know obviously the LA scene Greg Ginn and Black Flag were idols and they were they were straight up adults those guys Dukowski and Ginn they were enterprising you know young adult men you know and I mean Ginn had a electronics business before he even picked up a guitar so you know he was hip you know he could he knew what to do he knew how to register stuff he knew how to call and you know the thing is at least you had some role models who were ahead of you a bit and knew more and and but our version of it was just very it was closer to ian you know because it was very innocent and it was just like oh there's a pressing plant in the yellow pages we'll just call them up you know it was that kind of thing in the studio it was just oh you call this place and booked it we found jbs recording studio they were over in avondale um, sort of uh near you know decatur and it was a movie theater that had probably been uh several things over various periods of time i think it was a performance space and a movie theater it had been a lot of things now it's a recording or for that period it was a recording studio and and they had i think an eight track machine in there they might have had a 16 track in there as well but i'm pretty sure we used the eight track and we just went in and set up like we did at rehearsal and we played everything live because we didn't, really didn't have, there was no room to do a lot of overdubbing in our music anyway. I mean, and we wouldn't have known how to do it. I mean, I knew from being a little kid playing around with cassette recorders that you could cover up the eraser head on a cassette machine and record over what you just had recorded and have a, a you know, a layered experience but so I knew the word overdubbing but in practice in a recording studio I had no concept so we really went in there total greenhorns total kids we just played how we knew how to play and they got it they captured it and that was that and um, you know it wasn't anything like oh I'm gonna go and overdub this guitar solo over this one section or I'd like to, I'd like to double that I'd like to double that part, you know, this is none of that nonsense. And, um, and then it was just call up the plant and, and, you know, you send them your little 
quarter inch reel of tape and then a little while later it comes back on a 45. Now that was magical, I have to say. Seeing a 45 with our music fixed in it, with our name on a label, and I just made up the label name, Social Crisis Records. You know, you know it was just like, what are we going to call it? Social Crisis. And it was, you know, <laughs> it's just whatever, you know. And then, and then uh, but to see it actually come to fruition and hold it in your hand it was really very very cool and I think that was the most there were several well there were many lessons from that time period that still inform my life today but one of the primary ones was don't wait don't wait for anybody else to come along and understand what you're doing don't wait for anyone else to come in and make anything easier for you, sweep you up off the ground, rescue you from your desert island, you know, and take you into the promised land. There's no one coming, you know. That was the lesson for me. It was like, there's no one coming. Get it together. Do your thing. Because if you wait, you'll wait forever. And you will go undocumented. It will be as though you never happened. And so, you know, watching... All of these people, some, many of whom were kids like us, starting fanzines, booking shows in their town, booking tours for their band or other bands, networking through each other, was profound. I don't know of another. If we're talking sociologically, I am not aware of another scene where a whole generation of kids just seized the means of production for what they were doing, for the art they were trying to create and the culture they were trying to create. I'm not aware of anything like that. Because up until then, up until that time, the hardcore um, punk generation, the, the teen culture, rebel culture, had been, for the, for the most part, bought and sold back to us mm -hmm. adults adults were playing the music adults were putting you know forming the companies to put out the records they controlled all of the media by which you heard the records the radio the television whatever and here we had these kids who were like no i'm calling the pressing plant i'm going to put out our records I'm getting on the phone and I'm going to dial this number of some kid I heard about who runs house shows in Richmond, Virginia. I'm going to, you know, and I'm going to do that for every city that I can possibly do it in the country. And then we're going to get into some ramshackle vehicle. And we're going to show up to these places and, and hope we have a show. And by the way, oh, there's kids in, 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 in France who are doing this. There's kids in Italy doing this. There's kids in Japan doing, you know, it was just it was such an awakening to see that this was, it was like some viral event, you know, that was happening, you know, really a magical time pre-internet. You had no, I mean, cause you had no idea what was going on in, in, in the next town over a lot of times, let alone across the ocean. But when you put out a record, and there's these little distributors that could distribute your record. And there was a magazine like Maximum Rock and Roll that could connect many scenes from many different parts of the world. And your address to order your record appears in a magazine like that. Now, all of a sudden, you're getting 
you know, handwritten letters in broken English, you know, please to have the neon Christ, you Some know, pound with, notes. With, yeah, with their foreign <laughs> currency. We had you know, Jim and I had yen falling out of envelopes. We had we had Deutsche Marks. You know, this is before all the EU Union. You know, one money, one currency stuff. Man, this was like you had every country had their own currency. You know, so we would have francs falling out the envelope, and I mean, it was it was really great. I mean, it's hard to describe now. Uh, what it was like because everything took longer there was nothing instant there was no now everything is you just get on the computer go on YouTube do that you know everything's dial up in an instant and uh, there was none of that then if you wanted to talk to somebody you know in San Francisco it was long distance phone calling you know hope they're there you know what I mean there might be a way to leave a message, but probably not. You know, if you were on tour, if you were on the road and you needed to call the club and let them know, oh, we have a flat tire, you were getting on a payphone. You know, you were hoping you could find a payphone that worked. Get on there, put the money in the thing. You know, get on there. You had a certain amount of minutes until the operator would come on and, you know, cancel your, your money has run out. Your time's run out. You know, <laughs> You're leaving messages for people through other people like, oh, he's not here right now, but I'll take a message. And they're hopefully writing it down and hopefully delivering it. Maybe not. You know, it was just Probably so, not. <laughs> you know, it was just so like it was ramshackle as hell. Like, no. Oh, maps. Oh, you were getting on an old fashioned paper map and you were you were you were mapping coordinates, you know, to get where you're going or you were relying on someone's you know, relaying you the direction. You take a left of the tree branch is broken at the stop sign. And then you make a left there and then you go down three lights. I think it's three lights. It's two lights, three lights. And then you, you're writing this shit down and then you're in the, in the car. You're trying to like, okay, no, I think that's the stop sign. No, I think that's the stop sign, dude. I think, it, I think we have to make a left here. Like that was none of this ways and map this and, you know, Google maps. And there's none of that, man. <laughs> you were just, but you know, it was cool. I, I, I look back very fondly on that now. I really do. Atlanta Intersections is produced by Randy Yu and Nick Twomlo. Jacob Chisenhall is our editor and the legendary band with no name featuring Jimmy Deemer and James Joyce created and performed our theme music. We're grateful for the support of our colleagues in the Rose Library, especially Low Leader Row, Community Outreach Archivist, and Jennifer Gunter King, Director of the Rose Library. Special thanks to the Tots Till Death crew, Henry Aaron, General Ulysses S. Grant, Lee Scratch Perry, Jean-Luc Godard, the late Ronnie Spector, Joe Strummer, and Crafts for inspiration. Join us next month for part two of our conversation with William and Randy. For more information about the Rose Library and our other podcast series, Please visit us on the web at rose.library.emory.edu and follow the Rose Library on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find the Rose Library's podcast on all your favorite podcast feeds.